6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, The Church Epistles. Well, we are in hour 19 of Learning the Bible in 24 Hours, in which we're going to attempt to summarize or review what are called the church epistles, or, or another way to put it, are the Pauline epistles. We took one of them in detail last time, the book of Romans, but we have a dozen left to do. But before we jump in, uh, we'll get a glimpse, obviously, of the early church through these things. And I think it's important for us to realize that these are real people, just like you and me. Uh, real problems, just like now. They were resolved by real people, struggling to be effective pastors, leaders, deacons, whatever. Different styles, different personalities, but just regular guys and gals. Real people struggling against the powers of darkness. This indeed is an adventure. Now, as we look at the New Testament, we obviously went through the what I call the five Gospels, Luke volume one and volume two makes it five, the book of Acts being Luke's second volume. We're now in the 13 epistles of Paul, and I say 13 in the sense that I'm dismissing Hebrews as a separate topic for later. We went through Romans in detail, but now we're going to through, go through First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. The Thessalonian letters we'll touch on, but we'll review those next time for some special reasons. First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. That's our agenda for the evening. Now, it's interesting that Romans, the first of the Pauline epistles there, and the Hebrews, the first that are listed in the so-called Hebrew Christian epistles, are the major doctrinal epistles. Just as we focused on Romans, and when we get to the next session, we'll, talk, we'll focus on Hebrews somewhat. But there are seven churches that Paul wrote. Now those of you that have studied Matthew 13 and you're sensitive to the fact that there were seven kingdom parables, and you're also, by looking ahead, know in Revelation, Jesus himself is going to address seven churches in a very mystical way, which we'll review time after next. Paul also wrote letters to seven different churches. That doesn't leap out at you because two went to Corinthians and two went to Thessalonians, but there are actual seven churches that have been gathered by the Holy Spirit into our New Testament. And that's going to be significant to us, I think, when we get to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. But those are the letters to churches. You then have four letters, two to Timothy and then two others, that are pastors. These letters are written, they're personal letters written to pastors that were embraced by the early church to be part of their literary treasures. There are also three, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, that were written during his first imprisonment at Rome. 
They're not the only ones written in prison because Second Timothy was also written in his last imprisonment. But the Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians are typically called the prison epistles because they were a product, if you will, of his first imprisonment. Our ultimate syllabus for this course in the epistles is summarized in 1 Timothy 3.16. Easy to remember because you all know John 3.16. 1 Timothy 3.16 is a very key verse. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's quite a statement. That's a broad statement. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for three things. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. By reproof, we really mean wrong conduct, and correction implies wrong doctrine. Both are corrective measures, but one is in personal conduct and one is doctrinal. Slight subtle difference there, might call your attention to it. If you look at the, the order of these epistles, Romans was a major doctrinal epistle. It's followed by first, and it's the doctrine that Romans really focuses on is that field of theology that, the, that would be called soteriology, which is just a fancy word for the study of salvation. Soteriology is that segment of theology that focuses on salvation. And the book of Romans is the pivotal doctrinal piece there. But then it is followed by reproof and correction of that doctrine. First and Second Corinthians and the book of Galatians. Then we get to the, the uh, epistle of Ephesians. It also, while it's many things, is also doctrinal in the field of ecclesiology, the study of the church. It's interesting that many of the controversies in Bible prophecy are not really controversies in the field of eschatology. That's the fancy word for study of the last things. Many people who argue about the, does the church go through the tribulation or not are confused not about eschatology alone, but they haven't done their homework on what is the church really. How is it distinguished from other believers? There are many believers in the history of God's plan of redemption of people that are saved that are not in the church. People were saved before the church was born. People will be saved after the church is gathered. We need to understand that. So, but this church is very distinctive. The study of the church is ecclesiology. One of its pivotal, foundational doctrinal books uh, is, of course, the Epistle to the Ephesians. And then the Philippians and Colossians being reproof and correction of those doctrines, interestingly enough. And then, of course, we get to Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians. And there again, these are probably the most important doctrinal epistles when you study eschatology, the study of the last things. So soteriology, ecclesiology, and eschatology are simply fancy words for three of the many major segments of theology, as, as might be studied in a seminary or uh, in reading and that kind. So that's a quick perspective of where we're headed. Let's talk a little bit about Corinth. Um, the Corinthian letters are a little confusing because you have two in your Bible, but we know there were at least four. Also involving Corinth was at least three visits by Paul. 
The household of Chloe came to Paul when he was in Ephesus. Uh, the church had written him a letter, and apparently was brought to Ephesus by Stephanus and a group of others, who probably also added their own comments. And apparently the situation was very, very serious, and Paul responded to this group by sending a letter to Corinth that we know as 1 Corinthians. So they came and visited him across the sea. He was in Ephesus. Corinth is on the other side of the Aegean. That was, so he, he, his first visit, of course, was earlier, when the church was first founded. And he apparently had written them a previous letter. There's an allusion to a previous letter. We don't have that letter. But the household of Chloe visit Paul in Ephesus with a letter from Corinth expressing all these problems. And Paul's letter that we know as 1 Corinthians was his response to these problems, which are very serious. So 1 Corinthians is full of advice and counsel and concern. Then there was a visit that Paul undertook because it got worse. So he left Ephesus and he paid a hurried visit to uh, Corinth to try to you know, straighten things out. This would be his second visit. He makes references again uh, in, in subsequent letters to the sorrow there. He writes, after that painful visit, he writes to them a, what he calls a severe letter. This letter seems to have been lost, but he was very apprehensive about how it would be, was received. If it had not been successful, it could have been very, very destructive. And so as he, he was very concerned as to how it would be taken. Now, some scholars believe that portions of that letter show up in what we call 2 Corinthians. Because he, he, um, he sends Titus, he agrees to meet Titus in Macedonia to see how it went. When he gets to Macedonia, he misses Titus at first. There's a big, he's very concerned because he wants to know how it went and so forth. But he finally does connect with Titus and fortunately finds out that his report was received very well. And in response to that, he writes his fourth letter, really, what we call 2 Corinthians. Some scholars suspect that 2 Corinthians may include fragments that were part of what was the severe letter. There's, you know, scholars debate over some of these details. But the main point is that as you read Paul's letters, you need to realize that it, there are three different visits, because obviously after that, Second Corinthians is a very encouraging, upbeat, joyous letter. So it's, it's the favorite of many re people. But um, it may have, may have included uh, some of the segments of it, some scholars suspect may be appended from the uh, lost severe letter. But anyway, the point is, Paul uh, obviously will visit them subsequently, the third visit. So there are three visits, four letters, from those four letters, we have in our Bibles two of those. What we call 1 Corinthians, you could, if you want to confuse your neighborhood Bible study, refer to 2 Corinthians and call 2 Corinthians 4 Corinthians just to keep everybody confused. But uh, anyway, so for what that's worth. But let's take a look at this first epistle that Paul writes because of the problems there. One of the things he emphasizes in this is that schisms or divisions in the church are wrong. And uh, he talks there about true wisdom versus the foolishness of God. And I love that phrase, foolishness of God. You know, that's, that sounds like an oxymoron. How can you talk about the foolishness of God? It is interesting to realize how God seems to go out of his way to do things in strange ways. 
You know, he decides to wipe out the whole world and to save eight people on a, on a barge. The other, thing, other point that Paul makes in his epistle to Corinthians is that human teachers are but stewards of God's truth. He then replies to the other problems. He talks about marriage, meats, the Lord's table, all kinds of problems that were being abused in the Corinthian church. But also in this letter is a trilogy of chapters that are incredibly precious. Chapters 12, 13, and 14. Because he there, this is probably the definitive segment of Scripture on the spiritual gifts. And he talks about them. We'll talk a little more about that. Then also in this letter is what some people could argue is the most important chapter of the New Testament. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. And the reason they would say that is because Paul himself argues that if we don't have what's in that chapter, everything else is foolishness. And that is the resurrection. The resurrection chapter is arguably the most important chapter in the Bible in, in, in some respects, and that is chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Just to give you some sampling here, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And he goes on to make a point. And I think it was uh, Queen Elizabeth that said uh, she was saved by an M. What does she mean by that? Because she said in 1 Corinthians 1, she says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not, it doesn't say not any wise men after the flesh, not any mighty, not many. And she feels that she crawled in under that M, being obviously some of noble birth and yet saved. So uh, that's, that was her little uh, approach. But then he goes on, he says, For God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, the things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. So the foolishness of God. Strange phrase. Noah's Ark. What a strange way to try to save a segment of the world. The whole idea of putting blood on the doorposts in Egypt in the Passover, those are fundamentally strange ideas. God is making some points here. And this whole idea of raising a brass serpent to save these people from snake bite makes no sense in the Old Testament. You can read the Old Testament all the way up to Malachi. It makes no sense until you get to John 3 where Jesus explains why God did that. As an idiom in advance of Jesus Christ. As, as, as Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be raised up. And you, then you start to unravel it and you find there's a whole profound lesson behind all that. The trumpets around Jericho. Can you imagine Joshua briefing his staff on his battle plan for Jericho? We're going to march around the city once a day for seven days, keeping silent. Then on the seventh day, we're going to march around seven times. Then we're going to blow our horns and shout, and the walls are all going to fall down. Really? I would love to see a, a dramatization of him selling that to his staff, you know. And then, of course, the creator of the universe becoming a man and making his entrance riding a donkey? And the whole idea of having a group of unlettered fishermen overturn the entire Roman Empire. Astonishing. Astonishing. 
foolishness of God. And what's the ultimate foolishness of God? Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians. He says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved is the power of God. A couple of ideas here. The preaching of the cross does sound like it's the final capstone of these apparently, ostensibly foolish remedies. But there's something else that occurs in this verse. Do you notice that the entire world is divided into two parts? For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved is the power of God. People are either saved or not saved. And that's the astonishing dichotomy of all of mankind. So Paul then hammers on stewardship. And we need to talk about salvation versus rewards. Fortunately, 1 Corinthians 3 deals with this. There's so much emphasis on the fact that salvation is by grace, not by works. That's obviously the whole book of Romans, the whole book of Galatians is going to hammer that. Because of that emphasis, we have a tendency to ignore the other side of that coin. The idea of rewards for faithful service. Jesus may have saved you. The question, if, if I often ask an audience, how many of you are saved? The various hands will go up. And I'll say, great, what have you done with it? What fruit has it borne? Is there a changed life? Has there been fruit for the kingdom? So there's this whole issue of rewards that Paul deals with. See, there are two foundations that he highlights. Gold, silver, precious stones being one of them. And the, another group called wood, hay, stubble. And you either are building on one or the other. And fire is going to uh, test this. And what is burned up is lost. And what is, remains is, is, your, is a reward. Now, he's not, using, he's not speaking of gold and silver in a literal sense. He's using it here idiomatically. Those of you who have been in my office, you know there's two major walls. One wall has all my trophy, a lot all, but a handful of my trophies and certificates from my corporate, 30 years of corporate mergers and acquisitions and stuff. The other wall has all our ministry products and things on the wall. And if you look at the top of the wall, the top of the one says wood, hay, stubble. And the other one says gold, silver, precious stones. And you can figure out which one is which, right? Okay, all right. Okay. And it's to be tried by fire. And the point that Paul makes is even if you built on the wrong foundation, if you're saved, you're still saved, but you end up there getting there as if having fled a fire. Those that have built on a sound foundation will have rewards. That's what he's really dealing with. What he's really trying to point out is inheritances are forfeitable. Are forfeitable. There are those of us apparently, according to Scripture, that will be reigning with Christ. But that doesn't mean all believers are. You want to understand the differences. The fact that you're saved gives you access to heaven, but doesn't give you permission to rearrange the furniture. Okay. It was one way of, one way of putting it. The people that are going to be the main best beneficiaries are the metakoi in the, in the Greek, or the koinonos, which are, these are the partakers of Christ's mission. You can be saved, because Jesus has arranged that for you. But are you a partaker? Are you a partner? That's a whole other issue. Then we get to these three chapters on spiritual gifts. Chapter 12 being the first of the three. 
And one of the emphases in chapter 12 is that the Holy Spirit gives the gifts as He will. Paul emphasizes the diversity of gifts but one spirit. The diversity of members but there's one body. The diversity of service but still one church. He's using the term church here in its mystical collective sense. One of the great tragedies, there's, there's two kinds of mistakes that you can make about spiritual gifts. One of the mistakes that you can make is to assume that they're over, that they were only there for the first century. There are people that teach, well, they were just there until some event, they argue. You can't justify that event from the Scripture, by the way. So the first, there are many very good Bible teachers, very sound seminaries that nevertheless fail to recognize that the spiritual gifts are still enduring. That's the one mistake you can make, is to deny them. The other mistake you can make is to pick one and say it's better than all the others. And there are groups that take one particular gift and say, unless you've got that, you're really not with it, you know. I'm not trying to offend anyone, but the main point that Paul makes in chapter 12 is there are many different kinds, and the Holy Spirit gives them as He chooses in a great variety. I remember Walter Martin had an experience when he was a very young minister. He was in New Guinea, and there was a, a girl that was raised from the dead, and it, it made the magazines and became a, a talking point. It was part of his background. But he used to trade on that occasionally. <laughs> When he, uh, he would encounter someone that was you know, sort of a, on one of these points on spiritual gifts, he would look at them with great seriousness and say, do you have the gift of raising the dead? Oh, why, no, no. And Walter would look crestfallen. Oh, we'll pray for you so that you might enter in. And would give him this, he would start giving him this pattern that as if one gift was really the, the big one to have, you see. And he was, of course, being, he suddenly became, you know, he was obviously he had to recognize he was being facetious or sarcastic. Because his point was that um, you make a mistake picking any one gift, and, and incidentally, Paul tells you the one, if you're going to pick any of the highest, it would be the gift of prophecy. He'll do that in chapter 14. But anyway, uh, that gets us to chapter 14. He mentions that the greatest of these gifts is prophecy. Why? Because it most edifies the church. It convinces outsiders. Many of these other gifts are deniable. This is one that generally does convince outsiders if they're present in the meeting. And it, its use should be orderly. That's Paul's mission. But the main point I'm making here, between these two chapters... Chapters 12 and 14 comes the climax. This is one of those places where the climax isn't at the end, it's right in the middle. Right in the middle he plunges chapter 13. Because chapter 12 ends, I show you a more excellent way. He points out that all these gifts are without value if they're without love. So he emphasized the utter necessity of love, the moral excellency of love, and the abiding supremacy of love. I think most of you are familiar with this passage. 1 Corinthians 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. 
And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Those are harsh words. Those are strong words. But for those that would make a big thing of speaking in tongues or having a word of prophecy or whatever, they're eclipsed by love. And he goes on to describe what he's talking about love in the verses 4 through 7. He says, Love severeth long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself. Is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things, and goes on. You know what's interesting about this passage is you can substitute the name of Christ. You say God is love. We use that a lot, right? Let's see if it works. Christ suffereth long in his kind. Christ envieth not. Christ vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not save himself unseemly, seeketh not his own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. He bears all things, believes all things, hopeth all things. It fits, doesn't it? Now, what we should do now to, get, to make the point is, let's put your name in there. Chuck suffereth long and is kind. Chuck envieth not. Chuck vaunteth not himself, is not puffed up. Boy, you don't have to go very far because you, you can't help but smile because it's facetious. Because the gap between Christ and ourselves is so dramatized by trying to fit our name in here. You follow me? Now, there are some people you could put in here surprisingly comfortably. Those are the ones that are like Christ. I could put my wife in through here very comfortably. Interesting exercise. Sobering exercise as you put your own name. As I put my name in there, it's embarrassing. But you get my point. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.